Well, welcome everyone. It's a real uh, joy for me to welcome back His Grace, Bishop Angelus. Um, He is known to most of you in this room. (coughs) And um, he uh, is based, of course, in the UK, but really functions as an international spokesman for the Coptic Orthodox Church. Um, He uh, was here uh, about a little uh, over a year ago and was commenting on the situation then, um, the aftermath of the largest uh, attack um, against Coptic churches in August 13 when uh, Coptic Christians were scapegoated um, after the overthrow of um, President Morsi. Um, A great deal has happened since then. As you know, um, Egypt is a um, a country of relative peace and a right now in an in an area that is uh, a region of the world that is really um, becoming more um, inflamed by the day. Um, today we heard the news of the attacks of the tourists in the Tunisian museum, but um, a month ago we had the spectacle, the horrific spectacle of the 21 Coptic. Christians who were beheaded on the shores of Libya by um, a new branch of ISIS. Um, we will also be hearing from my colleague Sam Tadros, who's a, a scholar fellow here at the Hudson Institute, and um, we're very proud of Sam. He has, uh, of course, a, an acclaimed book, Motherland Lost, about the Coptic Church and its, um, its coming into modernity. And he has just completed a two-part study that I commend to you on the Islamist landscape inside Egypt. And he uh, documents over 120, some 128 Islamist groups. It's on the Hudson website, and it's um, uh, free to everyone. So please join me in welcoming uh, His Grace, Bishop Angelus. And uh, did you get your microphone? Uh, Are you going to speak here? Okay. Good afternoon, all. Um, apologies for having been late. I was at a, at a congressional hearing on uh, human rights violations by uh, IS, and it ran a little bit late because apparently uh, Congress was voting on your budget. So uh, just a heads up, there may be something to look up for. It's a, a pleasure to be here again. And uh, I, I consider myself uh, a personal friend of both Nina's and Hudson. And uh, Sam is also someone we're all very proud of. So it's a, it's a privilege to be sharing a stage and being able to be here with you all. We have seen a lot happen over the past four years. What was so poetically referred to as the Arab Spring, turned into somewhat of a challenge for the whole region. Originally, it was thought to be a challenge uh, only for the Christians. But matters unfolded in a way that was probably very difficult for any of us to expect. We expected difficulties. We expected challenges. But I think few of us expected what actually has happened now. Terrorism in the past has taken a a few positions, attacks, churches, individuals. But we have never seen orchestrated attacks of this sort, or indeed the declaration of a self-acclaimed state. Persecution is nothing new to the Middle East or to Christians in the Middle East. As Christians, we see ourselves as indigenous people, being there for 2,000 years, being very much part of the establishment, life, ethos, 
the whole system of being in the Middle East and therefore have time and time again rejected minority status. But the rise of what is now a caliphate, an Islamic rule, is proving more dangerous. It is not only dangerous to Christians, which is expected, but it's dangerous because there is an ever-narrowing perspective, a mold that is becoming smaller and smaller. And only those who fit very precisely within the confines of that mold are seen to, in some strange way, have the right to live or exist. And that is as, as drastic as it is. That is as harsh as it is. People are seen to be given a right to life, a right to exist, a right to be part of this community only if they share in a very particular perspective. And this goes beyond borders. It is a global understanding. One thing we should be thankful for is that this caliphate model could actually have existed in Egypt. Because while still elected president, while still the legitimate head of Egypt, then President Morsi actually called for a caliphate in Sinai. And so what we are seeing today in Iraq, what we have seen happen in Iraq, in Libya, could very easily have happened in Egypt and affected the largest Christian presence in the Middle East. We have seen a depletion of numbers. We've seen a drastic drop, especially in Iraq, in Libya. In Syria, the Christians are struggling. In Lebanon, there is such a pressure. In Egypt, of course, there is a pressure, but because of the sheer number, the bulk of Christians there, there is a greater stability. A stability because Egypt has a different makeup. Many thought that Egypt would fall into civil war. I was one of uh, those who didn't share that fear because Egypt does not have a tribal setting. It is rural. People are part of larger rural communities and it's very difficult to divide those into a state which could suddenly bring up a civil war as we've seen in other parts. It also has a predominantly Sunni Muslim community. There is a presence, a small presence of Shiites, some of whom were brutally murdered um, in those years of the Morsi rule, uh, a Sufi presence, but the, bu the bulk of the presence is Sunni. And so again, there isn't the danger that we have seen in Iraq of a Sunni-Shia conflict. What came after the uprising? What came after the Arab Spring? What came after the failed states, the failed systems, was a near-anarchic a near existence that actually meant that people were taking the law into their own hands. Security forces were depleted. In Egypt, the police force actually disappeared for a while. The army took over. <coughs> Armies are not made to patrol streets. They're made to patrol borders. And so we had vigilante groups start to arise. And in the midst of this, we saw attacks on churches and Christians in those few months, in those few years, that exceeded the 20 years prior because there was a lawlessness there. We had one situation on the outskirts of Cairo where a group decided that they no longer wanted a church in their village, so they stole a bulldozer from a local municipal yard and they demolished the church. It was that simple. And of course, because of that breakdown, 
the suddenly discovered national identity in Egypt broke down very quickly as well because it was hijacked by another religious identity. The communities then became more marginalized and they became more at the receiving end of what we saw as a targeted persecution. In a, com in, in, in a statement that I made in 2014, September of 2014, I wrote that while, while Christians continue to suffer the brunt of these dangerous levels of exclusion and dehumanization, the Yazidis and other religious ethnic minorities, including some Muslims, also suffer them. There was also a warning in that same statement that the IS model that was now put out as a reality and that was de facto acknowledged by people was going to be replicated. This wasn't just about Mosul. It wasn't just about Iraq. It wasn't just about Syria. It became Libya and further afield. There have been terrorist attacks in Egypt that have been claimed by people who say they are IS affiliates, affiliates. And in the midst of all of this, we see a greater marginalization of a greater number of people in the Middle East. Christians in the Middle East have a very important place. They are a buffer. They are a well-positioned buffer between two great groupings of Muslims that sometimes will spiral into anger and into violence. When we had the attacks on the churches in Egypt in August of 2013, unprecedented in nature, 50 churches, 50 other places of Christian ministry, in an orchestrated attack that went over 48 hours, I was interviewed very soon after and asked if I thought they were orchestrated. And uh, in my view, I said yes. And being orchestrated was actually the best case scenario. I was hoping they were orchestrated. Because if they weren't, it meant that there was a very thin artificial veneer that once broken meant that Muslims just wanted to attack every church in Egypt. But in fact, after that spate of attacks, that series of attacks, nothing else happened. The intention, according to some, was that the Christians would become angered, they would retaliate, they would strike out at the Muslim-majority community, it would retaliate, Egypt would fall into an anarchy, and there'd be a calling back of the former president. When the Christians did not retaliate, that ruined the potential plan. Christians were just being Christians, though, being themselves. There was no memo that went out. There was no public announcement that said, don't retaliate. We found people just taking that course of action. In actual fact, what they did was went on the charred walls of their burnt churches and wrote biblical verses about forgiving the other and loving the other. And that changed Egypt and it changed the region. Christians only have a place in the Middle East because they're resilient, because they hold on to their land, because they feel that they are an indigenous part of the land in which they live, and because a lot of them don't want to leave. There are people who are staying in place, although they are at great risk, but they're meaning to weather the storm. There is a move at the moment towards speaking about whether Christians should stay or leave. 
And there are people on both sides of the argument. There are those who will say they must stay. They must maintain the Christian presence in the place of the birth of Christianity. And there are others who will say they have to leave. They have no presence. I have a simple solution. Ask them. There is no single model of Christian presence in the Middle East. The situation of Egyptian Christians is very different to the situation of Lebanese Christians, Iraqis, Syrians, Libyans, etc. I know that we as a church still have 90% of our Coptic Christians living in Egypt. And there is no great desire to leave. There was a lot said of a huge exodus of Christians. Some said up to 100,000, some 200. The number is unknown. But the number of people who left Egypt directly after the first presidential election and then the unrest was not confined to Christians. People of means who were able to leave, who were able to exit and set an exit strategy just in case the situation got worse, left. Christians and Muslims alike. Some of them came back and continued to live in Egypt. But the vast majority of Christians in Egypt don't want to leave. And let's face it, even if they did, where do you send 12 million people? The dynamics in Egypt, uh, in the Middle East, have been when Christians are persecuted in one country, they move to the next. From Iraq to Syria, from Syria to Libya, from Libya to Lebanon, and people moved. But when you have a series of failed states where there is no safety, not only for the Christians who are coming in, but for the people themselves of that same nation, Christian or Muslim alike, where do they go? Lebanon now is said to be 40% refugee. That is a huge burden for that country to carry, yet it is carrying it. Some have gone to Jordan, but where do the rest go? In the West, with our own current financial status, with our problems that we continue to encounter, asylum is very little. And even when doors are opened, they're opened to very few. So, the answer is not to suddenly empty the, the region of Christians. That may be the simple textbook answer. Let's just take out the equation. Well, if they are the problem, if the Christians are the problem, they're not, then we'll take them out. But the Christians aren't the problem. The Christians aren't the ones who caused the, the, the meltdown in Iraq. If you take the Christians out, then there will still remain conflict. The answer is to look at the Christian presence and see its value. Look at them as important constituent members of societies, of cultures, of nations, of which they have been part for generations for centuries, for millennia. And to try to see that they continue to have that role. The importance is to see that there is a value in them as individuals. Not just as nominal Christians who have to be there, so we look like we are an accepting state. But they are people who are valued in their own right, within their own context, in their own culture, in their own faith. The importance of looking at this message is completely counter to the trend that we see at the moment. I just came from, uh, earlier today, the National Press Club, in which we spoke about coverage of Christians in the Middle East. And there is a desire, there is a tendency to try to generalize, to bring lowest common denominator, to speak about that, and to think that everyone is affected by the same thing in the same way. 
But in actual fact, we need to consider individuals. As I said, ask them. In the model that I've spoken about, in Egypt, the vast majority of Christians don't want to leave. I was privileged enough to meet with the Maronite patriarch here in Washington, the last time he was here, for a summit in which religious leaders, Christian leaders came from around the Middle East to stand together and speak about persecution in solidarity. And his message was very similar to our message and the message of our patriarch and our pope. But I've heard from bishops in Iraq who I've spoken with and dealt with, met with personally, who say that in certain areas of Iraq there is no longer a tenable existence for them. Trust has been broken down in these communities. Neighbors who lived side by side for generations felt abandoned, betrayed, and so therefore they can't go back. So where do they go? In focusing on Christians, we need to try to understand who they are, how they want to exist, and where they want to exist. Who they are, they see themselves very much as part of the region. They see themselves very much as part of its fabric. And I know it's, it's a cliched word that has unfortunately been used over and over again, but they are. They see themselves as that. They've been pushed to the peripheries. They've been alienated. They have been forced out at times. But they still see themselves as part. The only way ahead for them, though, is how do they want to exist? As valued members. Within Egypt, within the other states, there needs to be a pragmatic, intentional approach towards nation-building towards accepting these people as a reality in the state, as part of its formation foundation, and valued as members. And to create a top-down agenda that says every person is valued. I would hope, and I've said this before, and I'm sorry if you're bored of hearing me say it, one day I would really hope that we can look at the Middle East and forget about Christians and Muslims. So that the community would reach a state of, of advancement at which people could say, with all due respect, as much as I love and care about you, I don't care what your religion is. I care that you are someone I value. And I value you because, unlike what we've seen over the past few weeks and months, in beheadings, burning alive, live burials, trafficking of women and young girls. With that dehumanizing treatment, there's no longer I can look at the other as an equal. The other becomes an object, an object I can barter with, I can bargain with, I can trade off for a message or for money. So I don't want to look at you like that anymore. I want to look at you as a creation of God. And I'm, I'm sorry, my preliminary, predominant hat is that of a minister. And so I go back to that which God desired for humanity. Creating us in his image and his likeness. Creating us equal before him loving us equal before him, and knowing that we share in humanity a shared brokenness that can be returned from with repentance. But I must repent from what I'm doing. Directly after the attacks and beheadings of these 21 Christians, my first statement was one of forgiveness, and people thought that was very strange. It's the only thing we know how to do. We've never, as Coptic Christians, taken up arms. We've never fought violently. 
But we still remain as the largest Christian presence in the Middle East. There must be a reason for that. When I called for forgiveness, I made it very clear. We forgive the perpetrators, but the action is criminal. The action is heinous. Unacceptable if we are going to keep developing. The question is not whether Christians will continue in the Middle East. The question is how. Will they be comfortable, valued members living with equality? Or will they be those who are tolerated as second, third, fifth class citizens? I was challenged by a gentleman once who couldn't understand why I was offended by the concept of jizya, the tax. And my answer was because I don't think you would legitimize paying mafia protection money in New York. And even with payment of that tax, you are protected as a different type of citizen. And so that's not a way ahead. That needs to be challenged. There needs to be a challenge to the education system, to the values taught. There was a challenge by the Egyptian president to Al-Azhar University that their syllabus must be changed, that their attitude must be changed. Because there were verses there that were used to legitimize the actions of groups like ISIS and those that might come up later. I'm here in the presence of those who know much more than I about all of this, and I thank you for allowing me to speak. And amongst you as well, there are those who understand the situation. But I would ask for one thing, and that is we continue to look at the Middle East within its own context. It does face a risk. Christians face a risk. Let us stop trying to import Western models of how the Middle East should live. But let us try to work with the leadership there and develop whatever exists into a viable model for every person there. Christian, Muslim, atheist, religious or secular. Everyone who wants to be part of a community and everyone who wants to be part of a productive presence. Um, if you allow me, I want to close with a verse. comes from the second epistle to the Corinthians of St. Paul, who says, We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. That is the state of the Christians in the Middle East. They are pressured. They are put into situations they may not have seen in contemporary history. They will continue to exist because they want to, because of the grace of God, because of their resilience. It is up to us to try to allow them to exist with a sense of dignity and importance and understanding of what they bring rather than the challenges that they and thank you. Well, uh, I guess I have to begin by, in the typical Middle Eastern fashion, of renouncing the conspiracy orchestrated by my colleague here. For to be asked to speak after uh, a man of God is, uh, to say the least, not an easy task. It's a challenge. To be asked to speak after one who is so eloquent and has come to become the face and representative of the Coptic Church in the world is a frightening prospect, to say the least. So it must be a conspiracy that I am asked to comment on his grace's comments. Now, I, I, of course, His Grace has um, mentioned um, or touched upon many subjects, so I'll just briefly um, 
discuss a number of them. The first is, of course, the question of um, the Arab Spring began as bad for Christians. They suffered first, but it turned out that others are suffering as well. The hopes unleashed by the Tunisian state, uh, street vendor or by the protesters in Cairo did not turn out to be rosy at all. Uh, whether we're looking at the situation in Syria, whether it's Libya, whether it's Egypt, even Egypt or in Tunisia, often held up as the model of the Arab Spring, it is obvious to say the least that there are challenges, there are problems, there are grave dangers facing various communities, the vast majority of these countries. So here lies an important point for us. When we speak about the rights of Christians and about the persecution of Christians, it's not just because we care about Christian presence in the Middle East because we so happen to be Christian. It, does, it is because the fate of the Middle East Christians is very much tied to the fate of the whole region itself. The Christian presence, as His Grace has mentioned, is not new to the region. These are not new communities. A famous episode in the 19th century was of a Protestant missionary who reaches the Egyptian uh, city of Asyut and meets the bishop there, telling him that he wants to introduce him to Christ. The bishop, a bit puzzled, informs him that we've met him about 18, 1900 years ago. When did you guys get to know him? Of course, these churches have existed since the very beginning of Christianity. But it's not just because they are indigenous that we care about them. It is because the Christian presence has also been one that of a bridge between the East and the West. It was the Christian communities of Lebanon, of Egypt, of other countries that acted as that bridge, linking the two together, bridging the gap between them. The fate of the Middle East Christians is also a reflection of the general fate of everyone in the region. If the Christians are not getting their rights, if they're not allowed to build a church, if their law is discriminating against them, be sure this means that this country will be one where human rights does not exist, neither will there be democracy, neither will there be economic freedom and prosperity. We look at models produced by the Pew Forum, for example, on linking religious freedom with economic prosperity of that country. So the fate of Christians is not just a matter that should concern those of us who care about their fellow Christians or those who care only about questions of human rights, but it's also one that has strategic policy implications on so many levels. Now, the second point I'd like to raise is that of um, what with the, the patterns of discrimination taking place. His Grace talked extensively, of course, about the attacks, the, uh, whether it's the ISIS beheading or the attacks on the Coptic churches in August of 2013. Other forms of problems, discrimination, of course, also exist in the various countries. We have the official discrimination, not being allowed to build the churches, but the clearest example in that regard where the needing to build a church in a country like Egypt requires the president of the country to sign that piece of paper. Until 2005, just to build a bathroom inside a church required the president of Egypt to issue that presidential decree. Thankfully now, it's governors that have to sign the papers for bathrooms. New churches still need the presidential decree. So there are forms of official discrimination, the laws. We're talking about exclusion from the public sphere. It's not a coincidence that there is no president of an Egyptian university who's Christian, no dean of a school in Egypt, no head of a government-owned company, no governor in any of the 27 governates. The Christian presence in any position of authority, whether it's in the... Um, government side of appointments, of ministers, of, of the governors, of the local authorities is very minimal. Christian presence in ambassadors, 
judges, when we look at the police force, Egyptian security forces, the, the state security, or now they call them the national security, has 0% Christians, not a single one. The Egyptian intelligence service, not a single one. So there are those exclusion policies that are being implemented there. But that is only on the official level. When we look at the organized Islamist attacks, they have obviously expanded a lot in the past four years. As His Grace has pointed out, the lack of security, the collapse of the security forces, has allowed Islamists to attempt to fill that vacuum, to enforce their vision on the local level. Not just in a matter of a constitution being written and enforced on the whole country, but on the local level, on what people can and cannot do on the villages and the, the small cities level. That has meant, of course, a new phenomenon that we begin to see in Egypt. Forced migrations, Scots in Sinai, northern Sinai, northern Sinai being nearly completely emptied of its Copts. We've had it earlier in village in Alexandria and another village near Giza in August of 2012, where the whole Christian population of that village is asked simply to leave. We see that also in the rise of blasphemy, accusations and attacks. Simply writing an opinion on Facebook, on any other uh, social media uh, venue, results in accusations of blasphemy. You've insulted the prophet, you've insulted Islam, you've insulted whoever. Even liking a post, not even writing it itself, being tagged in a picture on Facebook that was deemed insulting to Islam resulted in a Christian being receiving a three-year jail sentence in Egypt. So we've seen, had the number 60 or 70 cases of blasphemy in the last four years where people have ended up in jail because their opinions are simply not acceptable to society. But it's not just a matter of receiving jail sentence. It's also one of the mob using the opportunity to attack not just the family or the individual who did that crime of blasphemy, but also the general Christian community in that village or small town. So we see those organized attacks. Maybe it's a rumor that the Christians are attempting to build a church. Maybe it's a rumor that some Christian has insulted Islam. Maybe it's a rumor that some Christian man has a relationship with a Muslim woman, which is forbidden by Islam. But the end result is always the same. The mob gathers, attacks the Christians. Usually it's not very violent, i.e. there are not really uh, that many people killed. Usually it's 60, 70 homes burned, some shops ransacked, and we'll go home. Now, where's the police in all of this? Where's the state? Well, non-existent. The police never arrives on time. When it arrives, it, after the attack has taken place, it arrests an equal number of Christians and Muslims and attempts to enforce a reconciliation session, whereby no one is basically punished for the attack creating, obviously, a culture of encouragement. If, you, if you're not going to get punished for attacking the Christians, well, let's have fun next week as well. Just uh, three weeks after the murder of 20, Christ 20 cops in Libya, we've had an incident in Somalut in the south of Egypt, where, to, to try to put it for an American audience, the state failed to convince the mob to allow the church to be built. You see, in the village, the police force was trying to negotiate with the local mob, please allow the Christians to have the ter their church. Now, the mob are not members of the Islamic State. They're not terrorists, and they're not necessarily there to kill the Christian population. They even don't really have a problem with Christians praying. What they do have a problem with, what they identified, is something that His Grace has touched upon with this question of jizya, or of second-class citizenship. You see, their demands for that church to be allowed were very simple. It should have no cross on top of it. It should have no tower. It should have no dome. It should have no bells and no microphone. The door for this church 
is to be on the side street, not on the main street. If these conditions are met, then we have no problem that Christians can pray. Basically, asking those Christians to accept second-class citizenship, to accept remaining as zimmis, to accept that the public square, that the public space would not include any public manifestation of Christianity. So the, on those so many levels do Christians in the Middle East face challenges. On the level of state policies, official discrimination, on the level of societal tensions, their very neighbors attacking them, on the level of organized attacks, whether by the Islamic State or by other Islamist groups. We've seen a humongous rise in the number of kidnappings in the south of Egypt, for example, specifically targeting Christians. Where these kidnappings occur, ransoms are lost, often crazy numbers. Christians are unable to pay these numbers. We've had incidents of pe people being killed, but it's specifically targeting the Christians. They're the weak element. They're the weak spot into the equation. As His Grace has mentioned, people in the Middle East are as individuals as everyone else in the world. They're not just a blind number of a community. They are individuals and they make different choices. But the question for us here in Washington is what can we do about it? What's the policy that Washington, Washington should take? The options are obviously very limited. As His Grace mentioned, Christians have moved from one place to another throughout the years. One country becomes bad, they move to the next. Well, very few countries are in any shape or form that can take the Christian presence of the Middle East. And again, these people don't necessarily want to leave their homes. The Lebanese Christians don't want to come and live in Cairo. And I'm I assure you, the Egyptian Christians don't want to go to Jordan or vice versa. So the question of a regional um, safe haven might not be working for the whole Christian presence. It might work to create a safe haven for Iraq's Christians or for Syria's, but not as a solution to the whole region. Asylum is also obviously, as His Grace mentioned, not a solution for everyone. There's no place simply put in the West to take those huge numbers of Christians and, of course, People in the West already have questions and problems with immigration and um, what it entails. Obviously, creating a Christian state, as some might want or dream, is also problematic. The geographical concentration in a case like Egypt does not exist in the first place. Where would you create such a state, even if you wanted and you had the means to do so? So obviously, the options there are limited. What the Christians want is not, however, a state of their own. What they want is equality as citizens in their own countries, that they are not treated as second-class citizens, but that they are instead equal to their Muslim, Jewish, atheist, whatever other religion that exists in that country. To create that, the United States needs to push for those pluralistic policies. It should not just talk about we need to encourage country X to work on religious freedom. It needs to actually be pushing for those conditions on the ground. Simply put, to use such an example, the Egypt receives a lot of US aid. Some of it is military, some of it goes to civilian projects. We should target the aid that goes to Egypt in civilian projects to the places that are better for the Christians. If a governate does not work to protect its Christians, if a governate, the police there, does not arrive, the judges there do not punish the attacks, then that governate should not receive any money from USAID, as simply as that. While another governate that performs these tasks should be receiving more aid. A carrot and stick policy here on the local level, 
might be much more effective than general talk about increasing pluralism in country X and Y. Working on those local conditions, addressing those local conditions, we know it's no surprise to us that 60% of the attacks on churches in Egypt in August 2013 took place in the governorate of Minya. Anyone who actually knows the local conditions in Egypt could have told you that beforehand. Why aren't we trying to prevent these attacks? Why aren't we putting a mechanism where those villages, whereby we know already that they will be the next massacre and the next problem, to stop those problems from occurring in the first place? If the Egyptian police force cannot protect the Christians, if they claim that they don't have the means to do so, why aren't we providing trainings for them to do so? Why aren't we helping to create a specific task force, a rapid deployment unit that could go to the villages where the attacks take place and stop the attacks before they actually result in people being killed? The policy options in front of us are hardly limited. And they don't really require us to think about the big questions of the Middle East and solving the big challenges of the Middle East. But they do require a commitment to, the problem that, to solving the problem that we have and an actual appetite for solutions to do so. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. Sam's uh, research has ended up uh, recently on the front page of the New York Times on his uh, mapping project of Islamist groups. Um, we have a few minutes available for a question and answer before our reception. And um, I'd like to ask His Grace a question. Maybe we just sit here and, and discuss it. After the uh, beheadings in Libya, uh, President Sisi uh, declared a week of national mourning. He went to the UN. He called for swift justice and sent out fighter planes to uh, Libya. Um, this was, to me, a sign that the cops were being taken seriously as the full citizens of Egypt, that they were not seen as a foreign fifth column that we um, have come used to seeing uh, them being treated. Um, how deep do you think this runs in Egyptian society? Is it going to be sustained? Is this a good sign? It's, uh, for me, it's, it's a bittersweet. Uh, it's a bittersweet that it is a sign that those lives were taken seriously. I, I would hope that that action would have been taken, whether these were Christians or Muslims. Um, and that I think starting from the top, then that understanding could filter down of it's not just about 20 men being killed in Libya. It's if you see your local Christian neighbor being victimized or persecuted, then you stand up for him or her. The bitter part, of course, for me is the additional taking of life. You know, I, that's just a moral issue I will continue to struggle with. I can't find an easy answer um, because a mil military action is always destructive. But within the context of valuing these people and within the context of a state responding within its sovereign right to an attack on its citizens, I think it did show almost a blindness to faith, to religion. It's a good thing. Which is a very good thing at this stage, and I hope that it continues. But I pray to God this, we don't have similar situations. But I'm hoping that at a more subtle level, when things happen day to day, when churches are, are, are threatened, when, when people are bullied, when there are accusations of, of, of um, blasphemy, that the same spirit can then spread amongst Egypt and that that same attitude continues to grow. Anybody, any questions? Yes, uh, the second row there and then the third row. Uh, can you wait for the microphone, please, and, and identify yourselves? We're being filmed, and we will be on our website. So um, please uh, do identify yourselves. 
Sammy Gerges from Freedom House. I would like to ask you, um, Your Grace, about the relationship between the political regime right now and the Salafi group. How the church look at this relationship and how it is going to affect the Coptic minority in Egypt. Thank you. I think every citizen of Egypt has a right to interact with his or her government as long as those people are law-abiding and as long as they are not exclusive in the way that they want the country to be. Of course, we only hear what we hear. We don't know the extent. As I said, any group can make demands. Any group can have a relationship. And I would hope that the state would be have enough integrity and leadership to in, ensure that any demands being made would not be at, at the cost of another community or other people. So in principle, I, I have no problem with the government. Actually, I'll go further. I, I would encourage the government to have a relationship with every law-abiding group in Egypt. And it's only through that inclusive presence that we could then get um, a, a, a more um, joined-up community, rather than having always people feeling like they're in the corridors, on the peripheries, not being asked, and therefore becoming angry and spiteful <coughs> in the process. But then you'd need a wisdom from the government to be able to filter the requests and manage the relationships. Sam, would you like to um, add anything to that about the uh, Salafi? Uh, I think the question dealt with the Salafi uh, movements and how they fit in. Um, Briefly. <laughs> I know you've done two <laughs> major studies um, on them. I, I would say that um, the Noor Party was, I, I assume you're referring, of course, to the Noor Party uh, as the representative of the Salafis in that regard. Uh, the Noor Party has been an integral part of the 30th of June coalition. It participated in that um, famous public statement announcing the overthrow of uh, President Morsi, uh, together with the Coptic Pope, together with the Sheikh of Al-Azhar, with the um, Mohammed Baradai, with the military, with everyone there. So it's, um, it's very hard to exclude them at this moment. Um, the government obviously needs uh, some form of Islamic legitimacy in its fight against the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, that legitimacy is acquired both from the official religious establishment, getting the support of Al-Azhar, and from the Salafis. So far, the people that have been praying, paying the price for that have been the, the Shiites and the atheists mostly. Uh, of course, Salafis hate Shiites more than they hate anyone else in the world, which is to say something. And uh, we've had a number of incidents of uh, people who pray in a Shiite form being arrested for insulting the companions of the Prophet. Uh, for insulting um, the wife of the prophet, Aisha, or, or any of these accusations. So we've had a number of Shiites who ended up in jail under the Sisi regime because of that. Uh, we've also had a number of incidents of uh, atheists, people who've made public statements of being atheists, being um, arrested and receiving jail sentences. We've had the famous homosexuals case, for example, which again is probably tied to that attempt by the Egyptian government to appear more Islamic, if not just as Islamic as the Muslim Brotherhood, as they are in a life and death uh, struggle. I'll make one more point. Um, I'm not sure what, what Sam would think about this. One mistake that was made in Egypt was that at the first elections after the first uprising, it was very clear constitutionally that parties should not have a religious affiliation. A blind eye was turned to that, and we ended up with what we ended up with. Mm. Now, I, I don't know if that is going to be the same. I would, I would hope that religion could be taken out of political parties, but knowing the landscape, I don't know if that's even possible. Mm -hmm. 
uh, go to the third row here. John Kunstadter, Redzima Photo. Your Grace, please forgive me for expressing my question without a sense of hope, which for a Christian is essential to have, and for finding it hard to express the same uh, level of forgiveness that you did. But in, in general, in um, moving beyond Egypt, where do you see any move not from the top down, but say at Al-Azhar or in any other Sunni theology faculty anywhere or uh, in the street, uh, a movement to rethink the Quranic um, scorn for the Holy Trinity, for instance, or, and one could go into many other verses in the Quran, which... Uh, uh, it seems would make it very difficult to treat Christians as as equal. Uh, do you where do you see that movement, and where do you see that nuance of forgiving the person but not the act uh, being understood by Muslims either in Egypt or or elsewhere? Thank you. Thank you. It's it's interesting that you asked that because uh, at at my early speaking engagement, I was speaking just about that, about there having to be a challenge from within credible Muslim theological institutions to challenge the Quranic scriptural verses that bodies like IS are actually using to legitimize themselves and their actions. Of course, the problem within Islam is that it is totally decentralized. And that's why people are finding so much difficulty knowing who to deal with and how. In Egypt, we're a very particular situation where we, where we have, have Al-Azhar. But that is the exception rather than the rule. Um, and even Al-Azhar, I think, is finding difficulty. There's a lot of pressure put on it. It is rejected by some for being too placid and not Islamic enough and being dragged along by the state and by others, other Muslims, who are pushing it to reform the scriptures. And you just need to look at most discussion shows on Egyptian television now where one commentator or other is talking about Quranic verses that are problematic and how do you justify them. So there is a lot of pressure on Azhar at the moment. And it does need to think this. And I used exactly the same word you used of nuance. Now, there are only two approaches. You can either say, this verse doesn't exist and we can't be used in this way. Or you need to have a nuanced in, in interpretation of how it fits into a 21st century context of Islam that does not just live in one state in one part of the world, but lives globally in lots of different states. When the president, when the president went to Al-Azhar and challenged the, the faculty there to rethink its syllabus, I think that was a step. Um, that conversation can only happen internally. I feel it's starting to happen. Unfortunately, I don't think it's still happening enough. And for the past six months, every time I've spoken about this, ever since even Mosul, I've been saying that it needs to have be an internal conversation within Islam. It has to be done. But the decentralization is definitely a problem. And it will continue to be a challenge until you get prominent Muslim voices who can actually speak up and make a difference somehow. Any questions on this side of the room? Yes, sir. Michael Alvin, I'm an independent researcher. My question is for uh, Mr. Tedros. Uh, is your suggestion with regard to aid uh, from the United States being tied to the effectiveness of a local authority, such as a governorate, uh, 
is, is that a practical suggestion under the, in light of the criticism that NGOs, for example, and USAID and uh, uh, the Europeans have come uh, under the, this criticism of NGOs meddling in local affairs. How could AID, for example, execute such a policy? Thank you. Uh, one, I think you're going to be criticized anyway. Um, the West is the crusading West that wants to impose its values. Whether it does or not, that's the narrative that's there. So, so the question of being criticized of meddling, I think that comes with the territory, basically. It's not, it's not something that uh, is affected by your own actions. It's affected by the perception of the West in the region in general. Um, I think it's something, it's, again, it's not a question of uh, we're protecting Christians. It's a question of maintaining levels of pluralism and rule of law and uh, protecting citizens. Simply put, if in a certain territory, in a certain area inside Egypt, there is no willingness to protect the Christians or to enforce any form of rule of law, then that's a serious problem. Not just, again, for the question of Christians, but for the law enforcement in that country as a whole. So I don't see it as meddling into the internal affairs. A, it's U.S. money in the first place. So it's pretty much up to the United States where that money is being spent. It's not like you're asking them to spend their own money where and, and to what reason they want. So if the United States decides that its policies are better served and its interests by providing money to build a hospital in the governorate of Sohag, instead of the governorate of Menya, that's up to the United States. We have time for one last question. Back of the room there. Thank you. <coughs> My name is Hermes Levy. I wanted to point out that uh, uh, maybe we, we try to close our eyes in face of reality. You know, the Bible talked about uh, a verse that I think need to be meditated upon. It's just three words. Watch and pray. That's the Christ was saying. The time we live in is a time where this conflict, we cannot, we cannot prevent it to happen. I think that the, the, best, uh, the best thing to do is to get ready. Otherwise, we're just fooling ourselves. Because the Bible or the Quran are all timeless books that talk about the event before they happen because they see them at the level of spirit. It's something that is already happening. So the best way to prevent uh, the Christian to be, be being bullied is to get them ready. And we ourselves to, to find the best way to help them in, in, a, in a timely manner. Uh, I would ask my, uh, His Holiness, what does he think about this verse that when Christ says you have to watch first and then pray? Thank you. May I respond briefly to the last sure. question? Um, if I could bring both these ideas together, conditional assistance is something that is typical to any funding body that funds any NGO. But rather than meddling, if this could be a way of empowering and saying, this is how we want you to do things better and we'll teach you to do things better, I, I think that would be a very viable model. We've seen what happened with the US funding of military aid, for instance, with the whole terminology of coup. And that went down very badly in Egypt because it was seen as a carrot and stick scenario. But if that could be nuanced into, this is a great start, and Secretary Kerry's statement in, Sheikh, in, in Sharm el-Sheikh was, was encouraging, in which we can say this is a new era, it's a new start, let us help you, and in which case this is how we can help you by developing in these ways. So I think that, that would work. Gentlemen there, I agree. Uh, there's little in our hands except to pray, but I think advocacy is an intrinsic part of Christianity because our Lord Jesus Christ himself was a chief advocate. 
And it is up to us to speak when there is injustice, not to become aggressively political. And, and I, I know I've, writ I've written a piece formally, which was, I think I found it liberating for myself because I was always traumatized by people telling me, why are you getting involved in politics? And I realized there's a huge distinction between political activism and advocacy. I don't consider myself a political activist, but I consider that advocacy is part of even my pastoral role. And it is not in conflict with preparing people to face adversity and to be strong in the face of adversity, but also to teach them that they advocate for others. Advocate for your fellow Baha'is, Shiites, uh, um, uh, atheists, the people who suffer around you, because part of Christian ministry is to say that every person is important and you advocate for every person. And I think that makes them better Christians. And sometimes focusing on the persecution of others gives you a greater understanding of what you yourself are going through. And as you learn to deal with your own struggles, it can, it can also be an inspiration to others. Your Grace, um, you have uh, spoken of advocacy, and you have a project yourself that you have started in the wake of the, these horrible uh, murders in Libya. And I, um, I have learned that Prince Charles has given you some support. Do you want to say something about this? So maybe some of the people here or viewing would like to uh, be part of that. Um, yes. Directly after um, the, the beheading of, of these men, there was a great outpouring of, of, of support. And so we started an appeal uh, called When Left Behind. Um, and if, you, if you're on Twitter, if you just search When Left Behind, uh, we have a Twitter account now. Um, and it really is to support the families of those men. We know the Egyptian government has, has given them a subsidy. We know people have given them subsidies. What's in my mind, and I'm, I'll be going to Cairo soon to discuss this with some people, is to establish an income-generating project within the area. Because the reason these men left the village yeah. and went to Libya was because yeah. they, couldn't, they couldn't support their families. Mm -hmm. So if we create a project for them there, then their families won't need to leave as well. And they have paid the ultimate price. Mm -hmm. yeah. We just don't want their families to continue paying a, a financial price as well. So we have been supported. His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales was very supportive. Um, my friend, Archbishop of Canterbury, Archbishop Justin, was also very supportive. Um, we had uh, a conversation by telephone from, from Prime Minister Cameron himself, who called to pay his mm -hmm. condolences. There's a lot of support for this because I've said this a couple of times already. It, it was interesting that in this act, we've realized amongst people that even evil has a red line that doesn't want to cross. And this was horrific. This was a horrific show of dehumanization that woke a lot of people up. So, of course, we would welcome anyone's support for that. Um, there are some pamphlets with Miriam. Miriam, put your hand up, please if anyone's interested. But again, if you're on Twitter, either through my own profile or when left behind, uh, you'll, find, you'll find that information there. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, really, we're very honored to have you here. And thank you, Sam. We, we won't, at Hudson, we won't be forgetting Egypt. It is an extremely important country, the largest country in the Arab world. And um, of course, the, the cops are an integral part of that. Nina, can I just say that, Nina, your, in, your input as well into the whole conversation, not just about Egypt, but about religious freedom, and the, your work personally has been inspiration to a lot of people. So thank you for everything you do. Thank you. Thank you.